Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. I'm Matthew Delaney. Thanks for joining me for this episode. If this podcast is helpful for you, sharing this is great. Also leaving reviews. Thank you so much. So this episode today, we have a special guest, Dr. Chris Dost. I recently discovered him on YouTube, of all places, and he's posting some really interesting content about biblical languages and the Bible, and I really enjoyed making a connection with him, and so I'm glad to have him on. He is a scholar, a biblical expert, and he's a pastor. He has three master's degrees as well as a PhD from the Jewish Theological Seminary, and he's a specialist in the field of the transmission of the Hebrew Bible. He has a couple books. Uh, He has one that's Jesus, uh, Jesus' Bible, A Concise History of the Hebrew Scriptures. He has also contributed to one of the biggest projects going on right now in Old Testament studies, which is the BHQ. Uh, and he's also translated Targums. He's done a lot of stuff. He's a very interesting guy, but he's a, also an incredibly engaging communicator, speaker, and someone that we're going to get to learn a lot from in our episode. We talk about a lot of things in this conversation. We talk about biblical languages, ancient translation languages. He does a couple deep dives into biblical passages, and he talks about Genesis 1 and, and how understanding Hebrew as well as ancient translation languages can give us insight into understanding some of the New Testament. A really interesting conversation. And all you need to know for this episode is there are a couple times where he shows some parts of the languages that he's going over. And obviously this is the podcast, so there's no visual component to that. He does it in such a way where you don't really need to see anything. Uh, if you happen to have the tools and resources where you're able to see those languages, you can obviously pull them up while you listen. But he talks about everything in such a way where you can just listen and follow along, hear the language, and hear him discuss the points of the certain verses that are important for understanding some nuance like that. I will put in the show notes uh, links to his uh, YouTube page, and from there you can find all of his stuff, everything, whether you want to look at his books or anything like that. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Dr. Chris, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. All right. Thank you for having me, Matthew. I appreciate the opportunity. So uh, as I just told you, I discovered you on YouTube and I've been loving your content. It's so great to see people who, I mean, you're into Bible stuff, biblical languages, you're a pastor, just a fascinating person. And when I started listening to your content, reading your stuff, I know you're the type of person that I want to have on here. So I know that uh, the listeners, people who watch on YouTube will all love getting to get to learn from you. So the first question I just want to ask, just that I love asking everyone, because you don't run into many people who are experts in the things that you're experts in, right? And so I'm just really curious, first off, how did you get into this space? How did you get into, um, you know, biblical languages and biblical literature and all this stuff? How'd you get into it? Well, I, I was a jazz bass major in uh, college, actually. Um, back when I was <laughs> cool and, you know, had a ponytail and earrings and the whole thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Yeah, I actually was, um, you know, I was a jazz bass major in college here in Connecticut. And, um, you know, I uh, am, you know, a practicing Christian. I had my coming to Jesus moment, uh, I refer to it as, when I was 19 years old. And I had a, um, in the church I was going to, there was a guy who used to constantly refer to the Greek New Testament. And 
I just got it into my head. Well, if he could do that, so could I. And so I just had this bug to, uh, you know, to uh, start, start studying Greek. And as it turns out, um, my now wife, uh, then girlfriend was attending a church in New Milford, Connecticut, where I am now the pastor actually. And the pastor wow. at that time, he, he just, I don't know how he got wind of my desire to learn Greek, but I remember walking into the church one day and he had a stack of Greek books for me, you know, Mounts's grammar and all that. And he said, well, here, get to work. And so I did. So in, in my last two years of college, I was transitioning out of jazz and into Greek. And, um, you know, so uh, after I, I graduated from Western Connecticut State University with, uh, you know, the jazz bass degree, I soon after enrolled at Alliance Theological Seminary in Nyack, New York, where I thought I was just going to take some classes in Greek. And um, so one by one, I started chipping away at Greek courses, got to a pretty advanced level. And then it was, I, I think I was doing a, I don't know, it it must have been like an advanced Greek readings course. But I finally realized at that time that the Greek of the New Testament was heavily influenced by Hebrew and Aramaic. And that's what, uh, you know, I guess you could say I was bit by the Hebrew bug at that point. And that's what got me into the field of, you know, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, Semitic languages, that sort of thing. So cool. So cool. I too was a bit by the Hebrew bug. And so oh. I totally relate. <laughs> yeah. I think more, more people need to try more people need to venture out and discover Hebrew and the other biblical languages. Uh, I'm curious about if, if someone's listening, maybe they, uh, maybe they've never learned biblical languages, or maybe they're in like an undergraduate biblical, biblical language class. And they're kind of curious, what's, what's the value? They're not skeptical, but they're just going in with an open mind, but they don't really know why, why spend the time and effort learning biblical languages or why, why spend the time finding people who are experts in biblical languages to learn from them about scripture? What's the value? Yeah, the, you know, this is a really tricky one and it, you know, it can be a bit of a touchy subject because on the one hand, you know, and this is my speaking as a pastor, you know, I want anybody who is, you know, a member of my church or anybody who's who's seeking God um, to pick up the Bible and to read the Bible regularly um, and, you know, with the confidence that they can hear from God, right? But at the same time, um, we have to recognize that every person, no matter how much of an expert they are, there are limitations on their knowledge. You know, I, I found that in my studies, you know, the more I learn, the less I know, um, you know, it's because yeah, every, every one thing you learn, you know, there's three new things that you realize, oh, I don't know anything about that. And you just become painfully aware of your own ignorance. Um, I guess that's what it means to be a scholar, you know, but, yeah. um, but uh, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's important for people to have the confidence that there are a lot of good translations out there. And frankly, you know, my position is it doesn't matter what translation you read because God has been trans, uh, you know, transforming people's lives for millennia now through the Bible in translation. And so I, I don't, while I'm interested in Bible translations, I don't like to squabble about that, you know, um, but at the same time, all of the translations do have shortcomings. I've worked as a Bible translator. You know, we'll probably talk about that later. 
And anybody who has translated um, extensive amounts of text from one language to another, and it really doesn't matter, it can be Spanish to English, English to Spanish, whatever, you realize that there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between any two languages. And, uh, you know, when I've taught in Ecuador and had to teach in Spanish, um, I can't always use a very literal translation. If I start thinking in English and, and just uh, giving a literal translation of, of what I'm thinking in English, there's going to be nuances that are missed. And that happens in every single Bible translation. So that's where scholars come in. That's where, uh, you know, good Bible commentaries come in. And um, I do believe that, you know, when one is able to invest the time in even becoming acquainted with biblical languages, you know, some people, they don't have, uh, you know, their lives are just so busy, you know, caring for children, working, whatever, that, all right, you're not going to become an expert in biblical languages, but by becoming familiar with them, it will give you a deeper appreciation for how God has communicated with humanity. And, um, um, you know, even when it doesn't, even when knowing the original doesn't give us the right answer, sometimes it helps us to rule out the wrong answers. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate the, all the nuance with that response. The more I've gotten into biblical languages, there's, there's unfortunately uh, some that I think there's a little bit of arrogance that can come with it. This idea that if you don't know original languages, you don't know the Bible, you know, you just can't know anything, which just, just doesn't make any sense to me. So it's kind of this balancing force of like, yeah, you know, there are many, there are many different spiritual gifts. There are many different strengths and callings people have that contribute to the body of Christ. And, you know, one of those could be learning biblical languages, but it doesn't mean everyone needs to do that. Um, right. But it all has its own value in place. Uh, so uh, you've studied a lot of languages, not just Hebrew and Greek. You've done a lot of uh, ancient languages, some modern languages. I have a modern language question for you later. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask people and just put them on the spot is if you had to rank the languages you've learned, uh, how would you rank them in terms of just your favorite that are most interesting to you? Yeah, right. That's a tough one. It, it depends on what season of life I'm in. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, there was a time during my graduate studies where I just loved studying Akkadian, which, you know, Akkadian, uh, for those who are not familiar with it. Uh, was, um, you know, it, for a while a spoken language, but also uh, later became kind of like the Latin of ancient Mesopotamia, as it were. And um, absolutely love studying Akkadian. These days, I don't have time to pick up those books. They sit on my shelf collecting dust. Um, these days, Palestinian Arabic is what really gets me excited. And it's the first thing I want to do in the morning. Um, but you know, that, that changes from season to season. Um, and it largely depends on what I'm involved with the ministry opportunities. Um, you know, the research that I'm doing, uh, for a while it was Aramaic when I was, you know, I think it was a stretch of about seven years or something like that, where I worked on and off on the Targums. And so I got really good at Jewish Palestinian Aramaic at that point, you know, and, um, so it, it really just depends, but yeah, these days it's, uh, it's colloquial Arabic of Palestine that I really, really enjoy studying. So cool. So cool. Just, you know, how did you end up getting into, uh, Palestinian Arabic? I've noticed you've also done some, some Hebrew it's, I don't know how normal it is. It's, it's interesting running, going into people who do biblical languages. I find that 
more often than not in my circles, that's not normal to go to the modern route. For me, I just so happened to study modern Hebrew first. And I, we had someone at my university who she grew up in Israel, uh, which was, which was really cool. And I am going to learn biblical Hebrew from her as well. Uh, and I found it very interesting. What has it been like for you also studying some of these modern languages, whether for, um, I don't know, somewhat connections to the Bible or just for connecting to people? What, what's been your experience with modern languages? Yeah, so there, there really is a, there's a nerdy way to answer that, you know, the nerdy perspective, right? Because, uh, you know, people mm -hmm. who are into this, they're just into it. But there, there is a practical yeah. side to it. Um, so one example that I like to give, um, if we want to understand ancient Israel, okay, so the, the people of the Old Testament, um, <clears throat> in order to understand them, yeah, okay, you take what is available, the evidence that's available uh, on the surface of biblical text. So, you know, the book of Kings talks about, you know, long swaths of history in ancient Israel. And, and you know, we learn about major sites and kings and some people groups, some wars, that sort of thing. But we, we miss out on a lot, actually, because the biblical writers as storytellers, like any storyteller, like the gospel writers, right? I mean, the gospel of John says, look, there's so much more that we could have written about Jesus. And, uh, you know, in a sense, exaggerates to say the whole world would not be able to contain all the books if we had done that. And so the Old Testament is a selective telling of Israel's past. And some of when when the the ancient writers of the Bible made decisions on what they would say and what they wouldn't say, that was in part guided by what they felt was necessary to say, right? So you know, uh, we as as Americans, there is a, a certain awareness, even for those of us who are not experts in American history and culture, there's just stuff we understand about our country's past, its culture, that we can just assume that the other one knows, right? And the biblical writers make a lot of those assumptions, interestingly enough. And so in order for us to get into the mind of the biblical writers, readers, and listeners, because most biblical readers were really listeners in ancient times, not readers, we have to understand the lay of the land. We need to understand um, the, the, the culture of the day. And one of the things I've found um, in studying Arabic, for instance, is that when you go to Bethlehem, so Bethlehem is right by Jerusalem, right? So it's right over the border wall. And Bethlehem is connected to two other Palestinian villages or towns. Um, you have Beit Sahur and Beit Jala. And the three of them are kind of connected. What's interesting is that when you take the four adjacent cities of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Beit Jala, and Beit Sahur, they all pronounce Arabic differently. Hmm. Now, these, these are adjacent towns with major distinctions in the way they pronounce things. And, wow. you know, in order for you to communicate effectively, you have to get your ear attuned to that. Now, you start talking to villagers versus, you know, people in the city and so on, and you realize the vocabulary changes. And we're talking an area, you know, that's, that's the size of, I don't know, Western Connecticut, 
or something like that. So what we learn by looking at languages sometimes from, from other countries and from other cultures is that they can sometimes give us windows into Israel's past that we wouldn't get from an American perspective just because our, our, our country, our culture has developed in another direction. Um, the, and everything I'm saying about Arabic is also true of Spanish, by the way. So any listeners who, like, uh, if you have anybody from Ecuador who's listening, Ecuador is a tiny country, but there are regions in close proximity to one another where the people have trouble understanding one another. The culture is very different. And so with that in mind, when we envision the world of the Bible in our mind's eye, we have to say, ah, even in this tiny place, the people groups that were there were not the same. Sometimes from village to village, they would speak differently, they would have different practices. And so I realize this is kind of a long-winded answer, but it's just one example, one way in which I found that the study of modern language and culture, the two go hand in hand, can help me to reimagine ancient Israel and come up with some new hypotheses about things that I can then test against the evidence from within the Bible. Wow, it's an extremely deep answer, but it does make sense. I, I find that one of the best ways to learn about a culture that, you know, without just doing the whole American bubble thing, like me and my friends are going to be in this American bubble traveling somewhere is to learn the language. It, it kind of forces you to really get into that culture. And I find it fascinating, you know, four areas so close to each other, different ways of speaking. Uh, yeah, it just caused you a different, a different way of viewing cultures and you wouldn't have known that without learning languages. So super yeah. fun. Arabic sounds so much fun to me. I really want to learn in the future at some point. I've dabbled with the alphabet after learning Hebrew. Arabic just sounds really cool to me. I'm actually also doing Acadian next semester, fun fact. So I'm excited oh, okay. to see how that goes. Oh, so, it's so that, you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> so that'll be fun. Uh, you, you, so you've done a lot of really interesting Bible projects and uh, language projects where obviously, you know, you've done a lot with Hebrew and, um, and Greek, but it was really fun for me to learn that you contributed to the Targum translations on accordance. I remember when I was learning Aramaic, there's very little Aramaic in the Bible. And so our teacher, he said, Hey, one great way to learn Aramaic is also look at the Targums, right? So you can read in Hebrew, read some Aramaic. So unbeknownst to me, I think it was probably reading some of your translations of that, which is really cool to see. I would just love to hear a little behind the scenes on what was that project like? How was it? And uh, maybe it'd also be helpful if you just gave us maybe a super brief nutshell of what the Targums are and maybe sure. what value that they have for people. Yeah. All right. So defining the Targums or the Targumim um, is, <laughs> is a tricky one um, because there is no one definition that is appropriate for the whole corpus of literature. So let's let's start with the basics. So um, Aramaic is a sister language to Hebrew and Arabic. In uh, to give listeners a sense of what Aramaic is, if you were to, <laughs> this is a bit of an exaggeration, but if you were to um, you know take Arabic and Hebrew and mix them up together, you'd come out with Aramaic. Now, I, I realize that some of my colleagues who, who maybe are listening to this will say, okay, that's not really true. Yeah, okay, I understand that. But there are, 
if you know Hebrew and, and Arabic, you'll understand. It's very easy to learn Aramaic. Um, so I had mentioned earlier in our conversation today that um, for a large portion of the history of Mesopotamia, what we would call, eh, let's call it ancient Iraq, okay? Um, Babylon, Assyria, that area of the world. Um, Akkadian was the principal language. Now, from about the ninth or eighth century onward, um, Aramaic replaced Akkadian as uh, a spoken language and also as the language of international affairs. And it's important to understand this because in the sixth century BC, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And we read in the Bible, if you look at 2 Kings 17, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 17 is the Northern Kingdom, the latter chapters of 2 Kings, um, where Nebuchadnezzar burns down the temple and exiles a large portion of the population of Judea, Jerusalem, to Mesopotamia, to Babylonia. And so as the people of God are living there, well, what language are they going to start speaking? They're going to start speaking Aramaic. And we know that this happens because when they come back, when we look at Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra is reading from the Torah, from, you know, the law of Moses, if you want to call it that, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And we read in Nehemiah 8, that is, Ezra reads the Hebrew. There are others there who are, it says, giving the sense of the text. Well, what does that mean that they're giving the sense of the text to the people? They are translating and commenting on the Hebrew because many of the people no longer understand classical Hebrew. It's kind of like, uh, you know, in, in uh, the Protestant church today, I realize that there, there are many churches that will still use a King James Bible, but a lot of Christians no longer understand Jacobean English. It's just the thys and the thous and the peradventures and all of that is it's a foreign language to most people. And that's why we have like the new King James Bible or the NIV or something like that. That's what happened in ancient Israel. The, some of the people come back. They no longer really speak uh, the Hebrew of the Bible and they need to hear the scriptures in Aramaic. And it seems that from roughly that time, at least orally, the Old Testament books that had been written were now at least being translated orally at times into Aramaic. Now, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, a couple of centuries prior to Jesus, that written versions of certain books of the Bible, Job and Leviticus, for instance, were being translated into Aramaic. And then what we have is somewhere around the first century or the second century, there was a practice of orally translating during synagogue services in some synagogues, not all, in some synagogues, the Hebrew that was read into Aramaic. And that what happened then is that over the course of centuries, there were official Aramaic translations that became, um, we might say, canonized. And I tell you that because I'll 
share a, a book here. So here I have with me a rabbinic Bible. This is a copy of uh, what we call Mikra Ot Keter. This is a rabbinic Bible. Now, I happen to have the Isaiah edition. Now, when you open the rabbinic Bible, every page looks the same. On the left-hand side, this uh, I'm sorry, this is my left here, you have the Hebrew, and then over to the right, you have the Targum, the Aramaic. And then everything else is commentary by, by classic uh, uh, Jewish commentators, we'll call them for now, Rashi, Ibn Ezra. But right next to the text, right next to the Hebrew, we have the Aramaic. And so it's fair to say, then, that the Targumim, or the Targums, Targumim is just the Hebrew plural, are, let's call them canonized, authoritative translations of the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic. Now, what we have to remember, though, is that when we talk about translations, the Targums are generally literal translations, generally. There are plenty of times, though, where an additional word, an additional phrase will be added in, sometimes for clarification, Sometimes it will be a theological embellishment, but other times you will have lengthy portions of text uh, found in the Targums that are not there in, um, um, in the original Hebrew. And so one classic example, um, I'll, I'll put this on the screen for, for the viewers here. Um, so let's see here. We're going to go to uh, Song of Songs for a minute. This is one of the books that I translated uh, for um, Accordance when we did the uh, Targum translation. So what I've done here is on the right-hand side of the screen, uh, down at the bottom, we have uh, the Hebrew Bible. This is the, uh, let's call it the original Hebrew for now, but uh, for those who've studied Hebrew, this is uh, Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. It's the, the um, uh, you know, for the time being, the uh, most popular scholarly edition of the Bible. And then above it is the ESV translation. Now, the ESV is generally based on the Hebrew. So what we're going to, the translation that we look at here you can assume that that basically reflects the, the original Hebrew. On the left, I have uh, at the bottom, we have the Targum of Song of Songs, and then we have my English translation of, of Song of Songs. Now, we're going to deal with just one verse here, okay? Now, for those who are looking on in Hebrew here, you can see that there are seven words. We have Yishakeni Minshikot Pihu, Okay, which as the ESV translates, um, uh, in, in well, we're in verse two here. I meant to read verse one. I'm sorry. So, Shir Hashirim Asher Lishlomo. Shir Hashirim Asher Lishlomo. So we have four words in verse one, and the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. You know, the you could translate the most beautiful of songs, which is Solomon's. So in the, the Hebrew, we have four words there in Hebrew. Now, look with me, even if you don't read Aramaic, I'm just going to scroll through the Aramaic 
to show you just how much text there is. Everything you're looking at here is verse one. That's so much. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It So translating this, I thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah. We finally come to verse two. I didn't even count how many lines of text that was. Uh, eyeballing it, I'm going to say 15, but uh, you know, it may be, may be actually probably a little more than that actually. So we've got, I don't know, let's say 20 lines of text, um, you know, where we have half a line in Hebrew. Okay. Wow. Now, this does not happen with every verse of the Bible in the Targums. These really lengthy portions are the exception rather than the rule. But I want you to see what's going on here. Songs and hymns that Solomon the prophet, wait a second. There's nothing about that in the Hebrew. He's not, he's not a prophet. Here in the Aramaic, he is the king of Israel uttered in the spirit of holiness before the master of all the world, the Lord. Ten songs have been uttered in the world, and this song is the most excellent of them all. This is a lengthy embellishment on what the Hebrew phrase, Shir Hashirim Asher Lishlomo, the song of songs, which is Solomon, actually means. So I told you before that the Targums are generally literal translations into Aramaic of the Hebrew, but sometimes they're actually more like theological commentaries. And that's what we see here. Now, you may be interested to note that, um, you know, on the surface of it, Song of Songs is really just, uh, you know, it's, it's love poetry. You know, that's the surface meaning of it. When you read the Targum, you will find that there's a lot of eschatology, a lot about the end times. It even talks about Messiah in there, hmm. interestingly wow. enough. So, you know, that's going to be for another time, obviously, but I just wanted to whet everybody's appetite here. Um, well, it's, a, it's a great plug. If anyone, yeah. you know, if you happen to have accordance or you're about to get it because you're in school, check out the Targums on accordance yeah. and... And I don't make a dollar off of it. So, uh, you know, this is not gratuitous self-promotion here. <laughs> <laughs> those, yeah, those extensive editions are very interesting. Our professor took us through some. We didn't go to the Song of Songs one, though. So I'm really excited to check that one out after our interview to see what these 10 songs are all about. Yeah. Um, so, so super fun. So there's another big project that, that you are currently still involved in and you've already done work in, which is the BHQ. Now, this one... I feel like it's probably going to be even more complex to talk about. I don't know if it's even best. You've written on the transmission of the Hebrew Bible. You have a great book about it. Uh, I don't know how much you want to say about what the BHQ is if, for someone who doesn't know, but you also have a good resource that might help give some of that background information about why this is important. So however you want, in a nutshell, what what's the BHQ? Why is this? I mean, this is one of the biggest important scholarship works that's being done right now in terms of your Bible studies. What is it and what are you contributing to this project? Yeah, so Biblia Hebraica is, is actually a series um, of what we call critical editions of the Hebrew Bible. So Hebrew Bible just means Old Testament in Hebrew. Um, so we call it the Hebrew Bible. Now, a critical edition is a scholarly edition. So what is a scholarly edition of the Hebrew Bible? Well, we have to remember that there is no one manuscript of the Old Testament that has the original uh, of the Old Testament. Okay. In fact, we don't have any originals. And in most cases, we don't know with 100% certainty what every word 
of the Hebrew text actually originally look like. There's a lot of complicating issues there. And so the oldest, most complete manuscript of the Hebrew Bible actually comes from the 11th century of the Common Era, 11th century AD. And that's called the Leningrad Codex. And the Leningrad Codex is a very good copy of a version of the Hebrew Bible as it was passed down by the rabbis. Now, you can see that there's a lot of qualifications in there. <laughs> so yep. um, some people say, well, don't the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the Leningrad Codex, that 11th century Bible, is accurate? And the answer is no. It's what they show us is that it is very accurate, but not completely accurate. See, what we know by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that books of the Bible sometimes existed in Jesus's day in different versions. Sometimes they were slightly different Hebrew versions. Sometimes they were very different Hebrew versions. So you have one version of Jeremiah, for instance, which is missing 25% of the book. How does that happen? How is it that a copyist would fail to include about a quarter of the text? Same thing with Ezekiel, same thing with Proverbs. And so the process of copying the Bible in ancient times is a very complicated affair. And so when scholars want to um, look at all the evidence of th that, that helps us to understand what the Hebrew Bible probably ought to look like, sometimes down to the very letter, we use a scholarly edition of the Bible. And so that will give us a text as it's found in the 11th century manuscript, but then it will give us um, different evidence from say the Dead Sea Scrolls, from the Targums, when the ancient versions of the Hebrew do not completely agree with one another. And so then professors and authors can look at that and come to a better understanding of how to translate properly a passage. To, to, to um, really simplify it, many people have study Bibles, and when they look at their study Bibles, sometimes there'll be a marginal note that says, some ancient manuscripts say whatever, okay? When, when your study Bible appeals to other manuscripts, there's a, there's a different meaning, a different reading. What they're doing is the translators of that Bible are using a critical edition. They're using a scholarly edition of the Hebrew Bible. And they're saying, well, you know, in this place, we don't know exactly what the Hebrew says. We're doing our best to translate it as faithfully as we can. And um, so it's, it's really a tool to help us better understand the, the how to correctly read and copy and preserve the, the Hebrew text. Now, Biblia Hebraica Quinta is the newest edition by the German Bible Society, which is replacing 
uh, a version that was produced in the 1960s and 70s called Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. And the reason why it's being replaced is because as wonderful as an addition as it was, there's new evidence available that helps us to better understand the text of the Hebrew Bible. Sometimes the editors made mistakes in their, their choices uh, or in the way they edited the Bible. And so BHQ, as we call it, Biblia Hebraica Quinta, is a revision of the scholarly edition of the Hebrew Bible that's used today by most scholars. So yeah, it's a an, an huge work that's taking, I mean, years to accomplish, um, but very exciting work. Uh, do, you have any, do you have any idea when the work will be completed? Do they talk about that in the meetings at all? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a funny story because I remember I was um, I took a Hebrew exegesis class in seminary um, in I want to say it was 2002. And I remember my professor at that time introducing us to BHQ and saying, oh, it should be done within the next 10 years. Well, we're almost at 2022. And, um, you know, the last time I was at, uh, well, no, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I think um, three years ago when I was in Germany at the, uh, the meeting of the editorial team, um, you know, I think we were saying that within maybe three years, it might be done. But the problem is there are a lot of veteran scholars um, who are, you know, advanced in age and, and sadly, you know, people pass away, um, you know, during the course of this. And so great scholars have, um, you know, passed away sometimes in the middle of their work. And it, you know, that obviously is a major setback to the work itself. Um, you know, and, and there are just other uh, issues that come up, you know, the, the scholars who are working on this are not getting paid for it, and they have other research programs, and they teach classes, and so it's not like it's a full-time job for them, um, so really there's just no way to know, but um, there recently was a, a setback with the Jeremiah edition, uh, the, the Jeremiah uh, fascicle, we call it, the volume, and uh, I know Isaiah is, lots of it have been done, uh, you know, a good part of that has been done, but there's just a long way to go. And um, so I really, really can't say at this point. Yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing more and more. Uh, yeah. I'm doing a lot of research on Proverbs, so I was glad to see the Proverbs edition come out and uh, it's been great to use it. Um, so this next question might be a little bit more of a niche question for people who actually are spending time with biblical languages. So I know probably even most of the audience is not doing that, but there are probably maybe people like me out there who, you know, they've, they've stumbled in biblical languages and they feel like, Hey, this is something that I am passionate about. Uh, maybe they don't know to what degree yet they'll see, right. What they end up doing in their career. But let's just say they say, I want to get great at biblical languages, or maybe just one of them they want to get great at. Mm -hmm. Are there any tips or pieces of advice that you would give someone who says, Hey, I would like to get really good at one or maybe even a few of these uh, important ancient languages. Do you have any advice or thoughts? Yeah. Um, there's no substitute for diligence. That's really what it's about is to, and I think that applies to any language, not just biblical languages. Um, you know, studying an, a, an ancient language, a dead language is a, 
a bit of a, uh, it requires a different approach to say studying modern Spanish or, or modern German or French or something like that, right? But it's, it's really about making the commitment to it more than anything. Now, yeah, there's the question of, okay, what resources do I use? And should I take classes? Can I do this on my own? Yeah, we'll come to that. But it's, it's really about making a daily commitment. That's why I, I just started today, in fact, doing these uh, lang a series called Language Lessons in Three Minutes. And so I'm going to try to crank out videos every day on biblical Hebrew and biblical Aramaic so that people can, if nothing else, just get three minutes of, of language. And, you know, if you do that over the course of a year, you'll be surprised at what you learn. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I, I started seminary um, in, in 2000 and I started studying Greek all the way back in 1998. And obviously the the, the tools that are available today, it, it's just changed for the better. Uh, there's just so much. I mean, you could do so much on YouTube for free. Um, seminary education is evolving. Um, you know, and one of the most important things for someone to get good at a language, they first really need to identify their learning style because people learn differently. I'm I just happen to be when it comes to languages, um, foreign languages, I like working by myself. And so I do well. Other people do better learning in pairs. And so, you know, if you're looking to enroll in a school, I mean, there's lots of great schools. Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary uh, has a great program in biblical languages, um, you know, and, and there are plenty of others throughout the country. Um, so you can go that route. But, um, you know, there's... Zondervan Publishers, for instance, um, and, and a number of other uh, publishers um, have so many user-friendly resources that come with, you know, companion web tools that you could actually do this on your own if you, um, you know, are able to hold yourself accountable to that. Very cool. Excellent. Uh, one thing I was wondering if we can do today is maybe tackle an example of where you see, hey, let's 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 look at Bible and some of these ancient languages and see is there any insight that we get. So this is something that I know you do on your YouTube page as well. Which, by the way, I'll post a link into your YouTube page in the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out for all the different types of uh, videos that you have out there. Which I should say while you're pulling this up, I'll just go ahead and comment that it's a great page. I really enjoy. There's you have stuff on some modern Hebrew, modern Arabic, biblical Hebrew, biblical Aramaic. You also have some just general teachings on the Bible, uh, a lot of great variety on the page. I'd recommend anyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a YouTube page with an identity crisis. Uh, <laughs> 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 a little of this, little of that, but yeah, it's, uh, I appreciate the plug. So yeah, let me, uh, I'm going to share my screen uh, with everybody here. And so I've set up, um, I, well, we're going back to the screen that I looked at before for song of songs, except now we're going to look at Genesis. And so um so let's let's look at the Hebrew of Genesis. And again, if you don't know Hebrew, that's okay. Just listen, hear the rhythm of the text, the sound of the text, and then I'll try to break down some of what's there. So the uh, the Hebrew of uh, of Genesis one says, "Bereshit bara Elohim et Hashemaim ve'etaretz." Bereshit bara Elohim et Hashemaim ve'etaretz. So um, you know, interestingly. Uh, we, I think most people are aware that there are seven 
days of creation, right? Well, six days of creation, day of rest. We'll call it seven days of creation. And it's interesting that the Hebrew text has seven words in the first line here. I don't think that's an accident, first of all. Um, that is something that, uh, you know, you won't find in the English, because if you scroll up and look uh, in the English there, the standard translation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so obviously we have more than seven words there. That is something that reading the text in the original um, was probably important to the original writer that is not conveyed in even the best of translations. Now, you might say, well, so what? Who cares if there's seven words there? Well, it, it does matter. These types of things do matter sometimes in that these are subtle ways in which biblical writers can communicate the, the focus of the text, um, um, you know, that this is about seven days, and that's going to be worked into the theology, that this is, there's a Sabbath theology that, um, you know, creation is not really about creation. Creation is about Sabbath, which is very a very different reading of Genesis 1 than, than we're used to. And this has nothing to do with the creation science debate. I'm not getting into that at all. But remember, the Bible principally does not strive to be a history book. It is historical, oftentimes, and very reliable. But above all, it is a, eh, let's call it a theology book. It wants to teach us what's important to God. And history, for the sake of history, as much as I love it, is not the principal focus. It's the theology. And so the fact that the, the Hebrew text has seven words in the beginning. It does point to the theology, to the message of the text. Now, interestingly, too, we have in the beginning. Now, here in the ESV, you will notice, and I imagine a lot of translations uh, will have a footnote here. And um, uh, so, okay, they don't, they don't explain this. I should have looked at this ahead of time. Okay, so they don't explain that there. But what's going on here, and one of the things that's debated by scholars is the word the. Um, because in Hebrew, usually if you wanted to say in the beginning, you would not say it in the way that it is written here in the text. It would, instead of being bereshit, it would be bareshit. Bareshit. It's the difference of only one vowel. But that difference can be very important. And so if you look at the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, they do a better job of translating what the writers of the Hebrew of Genesis 1 may have been getting at. And it, it may be better to translate this, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void and so on. Now, why is that important? Well, from, a, from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, we have to remember, look at Ezekiel 8, look at so many passages in the Bible. Throughout the history of Israel, the people of God were constantly falling into the worship of foreign deities, foreign gods and goddesses. Ezekiel 8 says that that is so pervasive, it goes right into the inner sanctum of the temple. And so one of the things that Genesis 1 is trying to communicate in a way that ancient Israelites would understand is that um, 
that the God of Israel is the only God. Well, well, who else could be God? Well, many of them had started to worship the God of Babylon. And isn't it interesting that the, the classic Babylonian creation story begins with when on high and nothing was created and so on and so forth, it begins with that same language. And it seems that Genesis 1 is intentionally written to mimic the, um, the Babylonian language, but then to turn the message on its head to tell the Israelites who were worshiping Mesopotamian gods that it is the God of Israel who is the only one who is God. He is the one who's responsible for creation. Now, these are subtleties that are there in the Hebrew text that often do not come out in um, English translations. And Genesis 1 is absolutely loaded with them. Now, I've also pulled up for us um, the, the Targum here. So there are actually many Targums to Genesis, uh, uh, but I've pulled up the one that is in the rabbinic Bible. This is called Targum Onkelos. And it says, Now, this is interesting because the first word does not say in the beginning. When the Jews of antiquity were, in, were, were translating the Hebrew, they didn't translate it in the beginning. They just say in former times. Now, I don't want to get into the significance of this, but it's at least for those who are interested in understanding when exactly is Genesis 1 referring to, it's at least interesting to understand that the Jews who translated Genesis 1 into Aramaic, they don't say in the beginning, they say in former times. Okay. Um, so these are just a couple of examples. Now, I want to point out one other thing in the Targum here that's important for New Testament studies. And we're going to look at a New Testament passage in a minute. I want to look at Targum Neophyti. So this is the, the Palestinian Targum of, um, of Genesis here. And so we're going to look at uh, Genesis um, chapter 1 and verse 3. Okay, now in the Hebrew, we can see that there are only six words here. And it says in Hebrew, Vayomer Elohim, Yihior, Vayihior. Okay, Vayomer Elohim, and God said, Yihior, let there be light, Vayihior, and there was light. Now, when we go over into the Targum, uh, the Targum it says, Vaamar Memra Dadonai. Now, this is interesting. Va'amar means, and he said. So this word here, va'amar, and he said, is just like this Hebrew word. It's a literal translation. But now, instead of saying God, this is the, the more generic description of the God of Israel. It doesn't just say Yahweh, which is God's name. It says the Memra of Yahweh, the Memra of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means the word of the Lord. So this is interesting now, because now the text does not say, and God said, it says, and the Memra of Yahweh 
said. So now in the Targum, God is not doing the speaking. There is this figure known as the Memra, who interestingly is with God, but distinct from God. It's, it's a little perplexing, a bit paradoxical. And you might say, well, I don't see all the, the details of that in this particular text. You're right. I am kind of summing up all of the evidence from the Targums and sharing it with you here. Now, why is it important to understand this concept of a figure known as the Memra of the Lord, the word of the Lord, who speaks on behalf of God and who later in the Targums acts on behalf of God. Well, let's go over to John chapter 1 and verse 1, and I have the ESV and the Greek New Testament. And the Greek says, So, NRK literally means in beginning. This is, interestingly, a very literal translation of the word Bereshit in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, ein ha logos was the word. Logos is Greek for word. Now, the question is, what does John mean by logos? Some interpreters have gone back into um, um, Greek writers of the past to try to understand what John means by logos. This is entirely mistaken, in my opinion, because remember, John is a Jew, and he is writing about a Jew named Jesus, and he is writing about Jewish things, okay? The Gospel of John is loaded with reference to, not to Greek religion, but to Judaism. And so when John, even though he's writing in Greek, he is thinking in Hebrew slash Aramaic. I have a friend from, uh, from Israel, grew up in Haifa, native speaker of, of uh, Hebrew and Arabic, and his English is great, but there are times where he'll just say something in such a way, it's very subtle, where I say, ah, you're thinking in Hebrew, or you're thinking in Arabic in the way you said that. Hmm. Just because John is writing in Greek does not mean that he is thinking with a Greek framework. It does not mean that he's thinking against a Greek background. In fact, everything in the Gospel of John tells us he's not. He's a Jew thinking like a Jew. And if you take the Greek word logos and render it back into Aramaic, what is it? Memra. Mm. It's the term that we find in the Targums. Now, who is the logos in John chapter 1 and verse 1? Well, we see that the logos is with God. And that he is God. Well, this is the same paradox that we have in the Targums, which predate the Gospel of John. And so what John is doing here when he presents Jesus, he is using language that was probably already used in the synagogue. These were concepts that were known that God has his memra, he has his word, and the memra is 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 God at times, but also slightly distinct from God. And that is how John presents Jesus as the Memra that the Targums talk about. It's the Memra that we've been talking about in the synagogue, you see? And so all that to say, 
in order to understand the New Testament, sometimes we not only need to understand the Hebrew scriptures that the, the writers were drawing from that were part of their lives, but we need to understand the interpretations of the scriptures like those that we find in the Targumim because that was up here too. And that's so, so hopefully cool. that's a little bit of an illustration of how these three Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts kind of work together. That's such a cool example. Really cool. Um, really quick question I just thought of when you think about the influence of the Targumim. You have Onkelos for like the Pentateuch. For, for the prophets, the, the Targumim for the prophets, do you have any idea about the dating for that section at all? Yeah, Not to throw you so on the spot here. Yeah, it's so it's called Targum Jonathan, and mm -hmm. we that's we we have to distinguish. There's a Targum Jonathan and a Targum Pseudo Jonathan. Pseudo Jonathan mm -hmm. is for the Pentateuch, for for uh, you know Genesis through Deuteronomy. The prophets, there's one Targum. It's called Targum Jonathan, and so anytime you know if you're reading a Targum of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, because those are prophetic books in Judaism. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets, not including Daniel, then you're reading from Targum Jonathan. And Jonathan, you know, there's going to be debates, but the text goes back to at least the fourth century. Um, one of the things that's tricky in dating the Targums, there's a couple of things. First of all, is that when traditions are written down by an oral culture and Judaism is historically an oral culture. That means that the when the traditions are written down, that that that's only indicative of when they were written. It's not indicative of when they were developed. And so if you have, if Targum Jonathan is written in the fourth century, then that means those traditions are older, probably going back to roughly the time of Jesus, if not earlier than that. But you also have additions because when texts get copied over time and, you know, they're copied by hand, there'll be later features that come in. And so that can complicate the dating of, but I usually go with the date of third to fourth century for Targum Jonathan. Cool. Very cool. Just curious. Well, this has been a great example of uh, the way these biblical languages work and operate and some of the fun insights that we can see. Um, so a few more questions as we, as we wrap up one that I just want to get to that is very interesting to me that you do a lot of this biblical research and languages, but you're also a pastor. And, um, I'm curious for you, how do you approach the way that you end up doing both? Cause I you know for a lot of people, the reason they get into these studies, you know, for some, it can be a fun hobby, but ultimately there's, there's kind of a mission that they feel that they have with this. And with that comes balancing a lot of things. It's yep. not just this idea that you're just sitting in your office all the time and you're just, you know, reading languages and reading the Bible all the time. You're, you're running a church. So I think there are probably people listening who maybe they are pastors themselves and they, you know, they, they studied maybe at seminary or they're going back and getting a degree or maybe they feel bad because they just, they feel some shame for some reason about not knowing enough. Uh, do you have anything that you would say to people who are either wanting to be pastors and they're studying now, or maybe the opposite, maybe people who are currently pastors and wanting to do a good job uh, in that arena. Do you have any advice or thoughts? Yeah, yeah. You know, you you really presented that so well because those are the thoughts that so many people have. And uh, 
you know, I, they, I have books on my shelf where I look at them longingly sometimes like, oh, if I only had, you know, <laughs> a day to sit down. And uh, so, yeah, you, you package that so well. And those are the thoughts that so many uh, people in, in my circles, former students I've had. Uh, that they have, uh, because, you know, we all have those books in our library where we look at them and it's like, oh, I wish I had the time to, um, you know, to sit down and read that. And then years go by and it's still there collecting dust, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can only answer the question from my own perspective. Um, throughout my scholarly journey, I have, and still do, I love what I do on the academic side of things. Um, I believe it's a calling. Um, and I believe that there are people called to that. I believe that um, that scholarship, uh, contrary to what some may say, um, is an act of worship, actually, when it's done for the right reasons. But my way of looking at life is that in order for life to be, no matter what we do, to be fully meaningful, the resurrection of Jesus is at the center of that. Hmm. And so, yeah, I've, I've been able to, I've had the, the privilege of working on biblical languages and studying ancient manuscripts. But in my mind and in my heart, that is only of value if I am doing it to somehow commit to Jesus's kingdom building work. Hmm. Otherwise, it's a career. It's a way to pay the bills and so on. But that's not what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's not what makes me, you know, I want to put one foot in front of the other. For me, I know that no matter what I produce on a scholarly level, no matter how many languages I learn, you know, no matter how much of a, an expert I distinguish myself as in whatever field, there's always going to be someone better. People are going to come along after I'm gone and they are going to rewrite what I have done. Because that's what scholarship is. Scholarship is an ongoing conversation. And so I want to be known at the end of my life as someone who was faithful to Jesus in the way that Jesus called me to be. Now, for me, I, I do believe um, that Jesus has called me to use scholarship to help build his kingdom. In the same way that he calls other people to go get a degree in psychology so that they can counsel people or that other people, um, you know, to, to work as pastors or missionaries, no one calling is greater than any other. And so the important thing is that each individual understand what their personal calling is and that they execute that faithfully day in and day out and not compare themselves to anybody else. You know, I've had those times in life where, um, you know, I've looked at other scholars and say, wow, that person's doing this amazing thing. I wish I could do that or whatever. And I just came eventually to the realization that the best that I can be is who God called me to be. And so, yeah, for the, the pastors who've been to seminary and they say, you know what, I've got so many board meetings. I've got, uh, you know, uh, um, people in my congregation who are sick. They're in the hospital. Um, I don't have time to read Hebrew and Greek because it's not helping me to do what 
what I really feel I'm called to do. And there is no problem with that whatsoever because um, there are only 24 hours in a day. And I believe that a lot of pastors are already so strung out because they're being pulled in a million different directions that to live with that guilt of, you know, not keeping up with everything you learned in seminary, it, it's just not humanly possible sometimes, you know? And um, so it, it's important for, for the individual, for the minister, and, and even the lay minister to have priorities. What are my top priorities? For me, language is my way of connecting with people the principal way in which I connect with people. It's what I do on YouTube is actually part of an outreach that I'm doing that's related to my church. And that may sound totally strange to some. What does modern Arabic and modern Hebrew or ancient Hebrew and ancient Aramaic have to do with trying to get people into a Baptist church in uh, <laughs> New Milford, <laughs> Connecticut, you know? Well, yeah. it, there is a rationale to it. But that's my thing that God has given me to do. Not everybody's called to do that. And that's okay. They have different ways. So the important thing is that the individual prioritizes what God has called him or her to do. And that they do that and forget about comparing themselves to other people. Because, um, you know, the body of Christ, we're, we're not all supposed to look the same. We're supposed to complement each other. Wow, that's powerful. Really good, really good word. I imagine it's very timely for a lot of people to hear. Uh, last question now is kind of twofold. One is just if there are any other thoughts that you just want to share. And the second is if someone's here listening and they say, Hey, I love listening to Dr. Chris, I would love to learn more from him. Are there any resources or any places that you would send them to? Yeah, it's well, people are always, uh, you know, welcome to contact me through, uh, the YouTube channel, leaving comments. I do try to get back to people quickly. Um, I love networking with people. I love meeting new people. And so uh, I would encourage them to do that. You know, these days um, I'm teaching part-time in two places. Uh, I just finished today, actually, uh, teaching a modern Hebrew course for international students for Bethlehem Bible College uh, in Palestine. Um, you know, because of COVID, obviously, it's an online course. Um, but interestingly, so, you know, I just finished uh, teaching at an Arab school. And, um, you know, uh, the same day I did that, I was talking with Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and I'll be teaching an Aramaic class there as a guided hmm. study for one student. So, you know, opportunities um, where I teach courses come up. But, um, you know, if if anybody has an interest in having me create videos or they're interested in, you know, having me, um, you know, teach a private class or something, I'm always happy to do that and just reach out to me through my YouTube channel. Cool. That's great. I'll put a, I'll put a link in the show notes to the YouTube channel, uh, as well as some of the, the things that you've written. And uh, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you getting to come on. I got to learn a lot. And I know I'm sure a lot of other people will as well. So thank you. Uh, it's been my honor. Thanks for the invitation.